Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical world, classical books, old things, education, um, uh, raising children up into virtue, and all that great stuff. Uh, my name is Graham Donaldson, and I am joined with my two fellow podcasters in crime. No. Wow. Fellow podcasters in, like, like hour-long mediocrity, AJ. Well, I think, yeah, I think sometimes what we do could be classified as a crime. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. And Thomas Fletcher Magby. Hello. Speaking of online, or no, one-hour mediocrity, I guess <laughs> that's what we're setting up for. <clears throat> and Thomas, I am feeling a little... Uh, listless. Mm. I'm feeling a little adrift. Okay. Um, I'm feeling like I'm lacking agency and power. <laughs> and I wish that I could just will myself into being a better, stronger person. Yeah. This episode... A lit- powerful person. Uh-huh. The, maybe the most powerful. Maybe a kind of ubermensch. Like yes, a, right. Okay. Um, where I can like glower from on mm-hmm. high down on the little people. You do that just fine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this episode will not help you with any of those things. Aww. Unfortunately. Also, we're not going to get into that topic for a little while. We, uh, I, I figure we, uh, we should do the announcements during this first episode that we're recording of the three. So there are a few things that are just, I, I find at least interesting. Maybe you don't. Uh, some of you all might have noticed that at the end of last week's mm. War of the Roses episode, there was a very funny audio clip at the end. Do you all remember? What Shortly. It's, it's gone now. It is gone now. Yeah. Yes. And if you're listening in the future, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you're listening to this around July 2022, mm-hmm. you Is will... Is technically everybody listening in the future? Like right now? Mm. Well, the one that's really blown my mind, uh, I was listening... So you, you, also, you, you all saw those beautiful pictures of the Hubble telescope, yeah. right? And um, so, But... What you're seeing with the Hubble telescope is, like the, 10, years is the past yeah. because light takes time to travel. Every time you see something, you're seeing the past because light takes time to reach your eyes. So all vision is time travel is what I'm trying to say. I'm never in the present. I can never be present. You can never be present. Oh, man, no, take I, that, Oprah. Okay, you, can never, you can never see the present. You can never be anywhere except the present. Mm. Man, this is so, so you can never see your own reality. That's the truth. So we're perpetually disconnected. Yeah, wow. always. Okay, well, man, we're turning into one of those, like, psilocybin podcasts. We have always been one of those podcasts. <laughs> uh, anyway, speaking of psilocybin, at the end of last week's War of the Roses episode, <laughs> there was an extra two minutes of audio, which I thought was very, very funny. So if you listened to it, you heard it was only my microphone recording the last two minutes of the of AJ's second social contract episode. So uh, y- you might have found it funny. It was obviously my favorite piece of audio ever because my audio was twice as loud as AJ and Graham's. Which has never so happened. I think it's the one, it's never happened. So I think it's the one time our, our, our audio mix has been correct. So AJ, I want to I thank you for those last two minutes of the la- of the social contract episode. No problem. No, no problem. I can. Much Helping out the people. We have decided to cut the pay of our quality control manager by 50% and we apologize for <laughs> the mistake. Aren't you the quality control manager? I'm the one who catches your mistakes. I was making so a joke that's, about you. I'm not so the, that's you. You're the quality control. You I are, only see it after it's uploaded. You uploaded. Anyway, whatever. It doesn't matter. Okay. So speaking <laughs> of the second episode on the social contract, do you, do you remember what you titled this episode, AJ? Social contract to Electric Boogaloo. Now, this is, of course, a reference to what's the movie? I don't know. I'm actually referencing a TV show that's referencing. Oh, never mind. Is it Boogie Nights? It, uh, break Two Electric Boogaloo. Oh. So you're pretty close. Oh, is it really? That's the name of the movie. Uh, I can now confirm this is your favorite movie. Do you want to know how I know this is your favorite movie? <laughs> you know. This is the second time you have titled an episode. It's true. With Electric Boogaloo. It Again, I, it's one of my favorite things to do. 
well, you've only done blank, blank two electric boogaloo. Because so this, I think, further confirms that as your favorite movie. Then the other episode was one twenty climbing Parnassus two electric boogaloo. So this is only the second time you've done it. I do believe that makes the social contract to the electric boogaloo of electric boogaloos because it was the second time you've done mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Can you add another electric boogaloo to the end of that title? You want you want Squared. me to boogaloo this one twice or just not this one? This is part three. So boogaloo. <laughs> no, I I have a very like profound and refined title for this one. I don't want electric boogaloo. Uh, sullying that title. This would be the worst. Okay, you got to send it to me because otherwise yeah. I'm just going to title it whatever I think of it like 11 p.m. <laughs> Later than that, didn't we, we had some troubles last... I, I feel bad for you. Yeah. You, yeah. I, I know I'm, make, I'm giving you... You feel a, bad. You just cut us pay 50%. Uh, zero to zero. pay 50%. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I don't get to listen to them before they go up. Uh, finally, and perhaps most surprisingly, Graham and I oh, read man. a book. Do you remember this? We read a book and we both liked a book. Is this ringing a bell? Oh, um... Uh, I may not have finished it. Is it? Oh, um, don't say that. Wait, which, you you I, I it. Which so the book that about. we both read is Reforming Classical Education. Oh, no, I haven't read that book. For, oh, wait, maybe I have. The one that you Sorry, blur- it was the book I wasn't thinking of. Oh, okay. So Graham what? and what? I recently read a book titled Reforming Classical Education, and it's published by the Davenant Institute. Oh, yes. A self-described group of friends eager to see a renewal of scholarship and intellectual life in contemporary Protestantism at the, intellectual, or at the institutional level, rather. Uh, Graham, what do you remember from reading this book? Um, well, it's a collection of essays. It is. Um, and it's a collection of essays. So oftentimes, you know, a lot of classical education is ecumenical in its nature. And a lot of it, um, so there's a lot of like, uh, Catholic, um, sort of traditions and, and, uh, Orthodox traditions and Protestant traditions. And this one specifically looking at classical education through sort of, uh, talking through the Protestant tradition. So, um... That's that's the biggest the biggest takeaway. So if you are a Protestant and interested in classical education, um, you know when this book comes out, it's a good read. What did, what, about, what was your favorite essay? Oh, my favorite one. Uh, there's an essay on Plato mm-hmm. called "Uncorrupting the Youth: A Platonic Education" by Colin Redimer, I believe is his name, and it was a it was questioning whether we should or how should Plato be taught to high schoolers particularly. That's what most of these are oriented to. Hmm. So I think many of these, many of the authors either um, have PhD level studies or such as Colin Redimer is, I think, in his PhD right now. But uh, it's very good. Graham said this already, but if you are involved in classical education, I would say even beyond Protestantism, it it very much is, it's Mm -hmm. toward a a view of um, Protestant uh, classical education, but I think for anyone involved in classical education, it is a profitable book. It's one you won't you won't agree with everything, but that's kind of the point of a book. Um, I'll just this is I thought this was a, a fun quote from that essay on Plato. I'll just go ahead and read it. If it's my episode, I guess I can do whatever you can I do want. Do what you want. Get after it. This is from Colin Redimer's essay. Mm-hmm. Uh, as someone who has spent time in the classical Christian education world, I have to conclude that we cannot use Plato as a model for our educational institutions. At present, lip service is paid to him in our Socratic discussions, and by keeping him in the curriculum in a minimal way, a sprinkling of apology here, a dash from the Republic there, the fairy dust of culture. We do not take him seriously enough to engage him robustly, nor do we fear him. He exists as an aged uncle invited to dinner out of an abundance of piety. He shows up and sups and speaks, and we nod as we studiously ignore him and return to our meal. But such uncles must be watched as they are not universally benign. Contemporary educators who assign Plato for homework are leaving their charges in a vulnerable position. They should not. 
Anyway, it is... Because Kurt is a, Plato's a crazy person. Sure. That's on Remember your episode on Republic, AJ? With, like, don't teach math till you're 30 and... Uh, no, ma- math until you're 30. And then and, philosophy and, Oh, that's right. And then 30. lie to them, telling them that they have magic blood. Yes. Uh, golden blood. Yeah. Yes. I mean, maybe they do. And there's a weird, like, lottery for... Oh, yeah. For, for making up. kids. For making... For having families. That's why you can't ever marry somebody your own age, because they might be your sister. Yeah. This is unfortunate. Anyway, it's very good. There are lots of... Obviously, that's only one essay. I think there are nine or ten in there. But it's very good. You should check it out. If you are interested, you can find it at davenantinstitute.org. Davenant is D-A-V-E-N-A-N-T, institute.org. Hope that I have spelled that correctly. Uh, I Just because he's the one who connected us, a big thank you to Dr. Mark Hamilton for giving us the privilege of getting to read and then blurb the book as well. Um, I think that Dr. Hamilton and his family listened to this podcast, so obviously they have... Our apologies. Well, (laughs) yes, apologies for this episode and all of mine, but also I commend you on your excellent taste in premium audio content, so thank you. (laughs) I thought you were talking about the uh, First Things Lecture. Oh, Carl Truman is coming to Austin. I have yet to finish his book, which is what I was thinking of earlier. Oh, no. Uh, I don't know if... Are you you coming back to that book at some point? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. I mean... Having finished it slash slowly enjoying it, or which pick whichever one you want to use to describe it. Sure, but yeah, I think Dr. Truman, or I think he's, he he must have a PhD. He teaches at the university level. Anyway, Carl Truman is coming to Austin in September, I think. So looking forward to that. All right, I this I'm going into this as our third part on a series on Leopardi and Nietzsche. I'll start off with some clarifications from the previous episode since I think that clarification sounds better than me saying stuff we got wrong. We said last episode that Nietzsche was charting a genealogy of morality to show how dumb people were for believing in good versus bad or good versus evil. Mm. This is explicitly not Nietzsche's goal. This is one I had to go back and and look for because I think listening to the argument that good things come from nobility and bad things come from commoners makes us think that Nietzsche's saying, you're stupid for believing these things, or even that he's in favor of the good nobles and opposed to the bad commoners. What Nietzsche will say is that he's not attempting to take either side. What he's trying to do, and he might fail at this, that's fine, is he's trying to point out that even in interpreting it that way, we have certain positive associations with things that are noble and certain negative associations with things that are common or basic or base. And that association isn't necessarily an objectively true thing. He's trying to trace through language and say, we have these connotations, so associations with certain words, and he's questioning why do we have these connotations? And the way that he gets there is through these two different words we talked about last time. His language argument, right? His language argument. And going into the details is probably not profitable. I shouldn't have done it last time. But the the easiest way to summarize it is the similarity between these two words in German, because that's the language he's writing in. Schlicht, which means plain, and schlecht, which means bad. So that one letter difference, the question he's raising is, is there any meaning to that similarity? And you can take the stance to say these languages develop randomly, that there's no meaning encompassed in that similarity. Nietzsche, through his academic training in this obscure, not obscure, but now obscure, at one time not obscure field, philology would say, no, there's some similarity here that we can read some amount of meaning into. He's not trying to attach meaning to that history that says good has come from nobility and bad has come from commoners. He's trying to merely say, this is the genealogy. He's attempting to make 
an objective historical claim in the same way that telling stories about the War of the Roses is not, we're not doing something negative. We're just trying to tell the story objectively as it happened. Mm -hmm. That's what he thinks he's doing. And you can agree or disagree with him, but that's the project that he views himself as accomplishing. It's weird to have Nietzsche not taking a stance on something. He was a pretty stance-heavy guy. I think something that I have trouble with is that I don't think I read stances into what he's saying, and I'm not sure that he holds the stances I give to him. Hmm. That I think I want to find more coherence in Nietzsche's writing (laughs) than is actually in Nietzsche's writing. (laughs) And that sounds like the backhanded compliment that it is, because... Nietzsche himself says he's not aiming for coherence, but I want coherence. And that's what you're saying. So he he comes across as sounding very certain on a lot of things when really he's just saying this is a true thing and then moving on to his next. But it might not be coherent. Exactly. Because even in this, he views himself kind of as tearing down tradition. That's my way of applying coherence to this. But the way the things he chooses to attack, there's no rhyme or reason to it other than that. He attacks religion, but other than that, he's just finding things and, and pulling at them. When uh, we'll get to the end of kind of what this is all leading to. Uh, in the same vein, and probably to finally connect some dots between Leopardi and Nietzsche, we've referenced our sad, sad friend Leopardi, and I don't know if we've really given a stance on Nietzsche as to whether he is a optimist or pessimist. I referenced this last time. I'll read a quote to back this up. But the philosophical school of pessimism that we're dealing with here is best embodied, most famously embodied, by Arthur Schopenhauer. He uh, was he predated Nietzsche, and his writings were very influ- influential to Nietzsche. Um, and I'll just I'll read this quote um, to kind of give a view of what pessimism is. Pessimism, the philosophical school, is not that people should be sad. It's a view toward how do we deal with the problem of evil primarily, or what is the nature of being? It's a philosophical position more than an attitude one has. I'll read the quote. This is from Schopenhauer. That thousands have lived in happiness and joy would never do away with the anguish and death agony of one individual. And just as little does my present well-being undo my previous sufferings. Therefore, Were the evil in the world even a hundred times less than it is, its mere existence would still be sufficient to establish a truth that may be expressed in various ways, although always only somewhat indirectly, namely, that we have not to be pleased but rather sorry about the existence of the world, that its non-existence would be preferable to its existence, that it is something which at bottom ought not to be, and so on. So bummer. Yeah, I literally a, wrote so bummer. So can you want to click my heels together after that one uh, to go back home to somewhere? Oh, other just than here? like enjoy, you know, oh, like get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you summarize that quote for me? What is Schopenhauer's argument? Um, I mean, it's the all of the take all of the joy in the world and put it into it's almost not utilitarian, but well, it sort of is kind of a utilitarian argument. But he's saying that the 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 drawdowns of sadness in the world are, you know, exponentially worse than all of the, the combined joy of the world, and therefore it would be a net positive if the game didn't happen. Sure. Anything yep. else, AJ? Well, that's about it. Any, any evil makes everything terrible. Sure. And, and even to pull on that utilitarianism point, utilitarianism has this concept that 
there's happiness, which can make something more right, and there is unhappiness that can make something less right, and those kind of balance out. Mm -hmm. Schopenhauer's argument goes even further to say these aren't the same thing. It's almost like a logarithmic, like the bad is is, is exponentially worse than, you need like, you're never even going to get enough happiness to counter to counterbalance the bad. Sure, I'm trying to remember. In so he's a glass glass half empty. <laughs> well, his glass shouldn't exist. Glass half empty, and therefore it's full of poison, and we should curse the world. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, all I'm trying to do is separate the philosophical position from the yeah, yeah, yeah. attitude, because there's like the way there's a way of being a bummer in the world that isn't taught. What Schopenhauer is trying to do is describe reality. You can be a, there's there's a happy pessimism. I think yes. Yeah. Well, and. And I think Nietzsche reaches that point. Maybe. And that's, mm-hmm. and you can disagree with that, and we'll have no time to do that at the end of this episode. <laughs> but I think that Leopardi is just purely in the line of Schopenhauer to say, again, he looks at a garden, and yes, there are beautiful things in the garden, but what's the garden also doing? The bees are killing the bugs yes. and, and the. And they're decaying. And they're ultimately. decaying. So when you, to look at anything is to see death yeah. and to see the end of things, as opposed to normal people who see pretty flowers and and bees and insects. That's not what Leopardi sees. I mean, the normies. Normies, yeah. But but this is my point of, uh, we can say that we don't like certain opinions. My question is, how do we respond to this and say he's wrong? Mm -hmm. And we'll get there. As opposed to just making fun of him. Yes, because we can make fun of Leopardi, and and we can laugh at the Schopenhauer quote, because it sounds very silly. But But the question is, what is right? Yeah, yeah. Because Schopenhauer, as all philosophers do, are trying to reach at truth. And this is him describing what he sees as true, that... Happiness and sadness don't cancel each other out. They are fundamentally different things. How, how does one respond to that? Um, just before we'll get there, and by we'll get there, I mean we'll never get there. Um, uh, Schopenhauer is like, he's so fixated, just to repeat it, he's fixated on the presence of this amorphous thing called suffering. The amount doesn't even matter. It's that suffering exists that he can't be happy. Even when he must have had good meals, he must have had good conversations, but those didn't balance out that a hundred miles away, someone was having a bad day to take as a, to oversimplify the negative. Really? He even goes that far. Does he go as far as to say like someone could have the happiest life and experience no suffering, but if somebody else a hundred miles away experienced suffering, that person's life wasn't happy or, or still the whole game should be canceled out. Obviously I don't want to overstate my study into Schopenhauer. I'll just repeat again. Therefore were the evil in the world, even a hundred times less than it is, it's mere existence would still be sufficient. So that there is any suffering in the world means there is an evil or a badness inherent to existence that those two go together. And because happiness can't balance it out because they're fundamentally different things. The fact that it exists makes existence terrible. Exactly. Yes. It's, it's, it's almost poisoned by the existence of suffering to take what you're saying. So that's his view. I know, I know you two don't agree with it, but that, that's the view that he's putting forth. So I knew a guy out. in college like that. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of... I'm sorry, I don't want to derail us. If, you're, if you want to move on. You go for it. Well, it just makes me think of that section in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis where the... What is it? The, there, there's a woman who's like, why can't... Like, I am miserable... And that should make you miserable. It's about her kid, right? Yeah, no. it's about her kid. And he's like, I can't, I can't be miserable here. And basically, all of hell is contained within a crack in the ground because hell doesn't get to veto heaven. Right. Right? Like, they don't have the right, evil does not have the right to say that, therefore, no good shall exist. Sure. Um, and even all of that evil can't undo the smallest bit of good in heaven. Um, it just makes me think of that. I don't know that that's a good philosophical rebuttal to Schopenhauer. Yeah. Um, 
saying that uh, good and evil are two fundamentally different things, I'd have to understand better where he is he is getting that because they seem sure. to be in the same family. But it's me. funny because they're just the opposite of each other. Yeah, Lewis yes. says that it's the goodness doesn't isn't outweighed by the bad. Schopenhauer will say the bad isn't outdone by the good. And due to my lack of research, not the lack of thought on their parts, these are un, these are um, unfounded uh, uh, statements, right? I forget what our bell is for. Is it? Um, oh, a blind, blind assertion. Blind assertion. Can you ring? Well, it's not for you though. I, if it's for these two. Okay, yeah, yeah, just two. Thank you. There so you these go. are yeah blind assertions from both of them. Only because I haven't done the research. Apologies. I also think my because I want to be quippy with Schopenhauer because I'm in the same boat of not agreeing with him, but I want to treat him seriously. But it does make me think of that H. L. Mencken quote about Puritans that I'm sure you've heard before. But it's almost the it's the inverse of that Puritan quote. It's that Schopenhauer has this haunting fear that someone somewhere may be unhappy. The Puritan <laughs> one is that uh, haunting fear that someone might be happy. So again, the, there's no possibility of his own personal happiness because of this general sense of the possibility of suffering around him. I won't belabor the connection to Leopardi because I think you could hear Leopardi making that exact same quote sure. that I just read from Schopenhauer, that he's just distinctly in this line of pessimism that follows from Schopenhauer then ultimately to Nietzsche. Did Sch just a weird question. Did Schopenhauer ever get a girlfriend? Schopenhauer lived a long life. I don't know if he was married. I, again, these are things okay. I should know. I only have like, again, like one quote of his and, uh, and very little else. But he lived a long life. And if you see, there's a, there's a famous statue of him walking with a dog. And he looks very jaunty and like happy. So oh. I, uh, this is, again, why I want to separate, again, phil philosophy versus affect. I think those are different things. Sure. I was just wondering if he and Leopardi would have hung out while they oh. didn't get invited to parties. Well, no one would hang out. No one would hang out with Leopardi. No, he, no one. He's a smelly hunchback, unfortunately. Right. So I was wondering if uh, Schopenhauer. Was Schopenhauer was not. He he has great mutton chops. If you ever see him, he's like incredible right. facial hair. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. So that's him. So that is Schopenhauer. Um, to move slightly away just for a second, I think before even addressing any philosophical concerns as a practical matter, I think Schopenhauer's position is a quick and easy way to paralysis. Why do anything? Why seek any happiness if the world is still fundamentally evil to its core? Um, I think there are interesting books. They're popular. They're, they're somewhat recent. Some are not that recent, but I think of titles like the next right thing or Eugene Peterson, along obedience in the same direction as correctives to this obsession with, the presence of some kind of badness outside of oneself. We're not responsible for those things. And so we kind of have to do right with what we have and then let the rest take care of itself in some way. Um, are you all familiar with either of these books, The Next Right Thing or A Long Obedience in the Same Direction? I haven't read them. I just know the concepts. Yeah, heard of them. And do you have thoughts on, on the concepts themselves? Are they helpful ideas? I mean, they're helpful ideas. Um, I guess the argument, so, so essentially they're saying like, you can't change the presence of evil in the world, so focus on doing the next right thing or focus on uh, Eugene Peterson like, being faithful. Mm -hmm. like the, um, and so, you know, basically take everything and make it a lot smaller, turn down the volume on everything and just focus on what you can achieve in front of you. Yes. Which is, I think, fine psychological advice, but it doesn't answer oh. Schopenhauer's question. Like it, do, it, it's, it's it is a it. coping mechanism. It is not a, a, uh, a grappling with Schopenhauer's point, I, I think. I think it's a fair point. Man, I wish I knew more about Schopenhauer's point because... It, I feel bad for bringing it up. That's okay. <laughs> it just it still seems to me like he's making a value judgment because you could say on the other side, these two things are fundamentally not opposite. Yes. And therefore, any presence of good in the world should mean that we preserve it. Yes. 
isn't this always our criticism of philosophy that there's always an underlying value judgment made that can't be backed up? This I think is I think is re- very tied to your episode on math. What was the name of that one? Yeah, yeah. The, no, 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 it was on math. Okay, great. <laughs> that no mathematical system can prove itself. Yeah, I think that's true of these philosophies also. All these philosophies require some kind of value judgment outside of them to then say these things in the philosophy are right or wrong. Again, let's let's table the the Schopenhauer sure. himself because I haven't. Again, I, I I'm just bringing up his quotes to kind of present a genealogy that goes from Schopenhauer to lay a party to Nietzsche. Okay, so we really derailed you. Oh, so, well, kind of. Okay, <laughs> I mean the answer is yes, right? But so uh, I agree that these are things that are sidestepping the issue as opposed to dealing with them. I think again, just purely as a practical matter, that they're very helpful. Just as fun trivia, do you know where these titles come from? The next right thing or a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, no, I don't. I, I just know there was a tribute to. I know the long obedience. I thought it was a Lewis Carroll. It was a, a Eugene Peterson essay. Uh, it might have started that way, and it's a it's it's a book now. Yeah, uh, it's probably a song lyric. I think I own that book. Um, so your so song lyric rounds to poem for the uh, Emily Freeman next right thing. It comes from a poem mm. that um, Elizabeth Elliot would like to quote mm, cool. uh, or quoted regularly, and oh. that's where Freeman heard that. A long obedience in the same direction comes from this little section I'm going to read you right now. The essential thing in heaven and upon earth seems, to say it again, to be a protracted obedience in one direction. From out of that, there always emerges and has always emerged in the long run something for the sake of which it is worthwhile to live on earth. For example, virtue, art, music, dance, reason, spirituality, something transfiguring, refined, Mad and divine. Do you want to guess? Who said that quote? Thomas Merton. Hmm. Frederick Nietzsche. Oh, gosh. Frederick Nietzsche in Beyond Good and Evil. So, let's just... Awesome. Well, just to trace this again. Schopenhauer, everything is bad. Mm -hmm. Just suck it up. Lay a party. Everything is bad. I want to die. Nietzsche, long obedience in the same direction. I know ah, you don't like this. overstating it. I, uh, of All course right, it is. Go ahead. But he's, he's not aiming for coherence. No. Well, that part's true. <laughs> I'm overstating it. Well, I want you to tell me why I'm overstating it. But the one thing I don't think I'm overstating is that he doesn't follow directly in the line from Schopenhauer. That's the only point sure. I'm making. I guess it's the, sure. the big question is obedience to what or to whom. That is a, a great point. Nietzsche will ultimately say oneself. That I am the one who gets to pick right and wrong. I must live true to myself. And Eugene Peterson is not definitely. Of not course not. That. How no. can you do anything except obey yourself? Mm, because oh, because there are certain ways that we are programmed by society around us, our families. We must throw those things off. That's the whole will to power. That's the whole genealogy of morals, and put on values that we choose ourselves. Does that mean, but ultimately also sidestepping the issue of how do I know what I am? I, but I don't want to go into that at all. Oh but. yeah. There, there's other, yeah. Then we're back problems. to our Psilocybin podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've always been there. Um, and just, to, uh, you know, there might, I think it's reasonable to raise questions of why we're doing three episodes on two people who are kind of bummers. And I think some, maybe you don't, I, well, I don't think you, we live in a Nietzsche world, my friend. I think that's a fine reason for it also. But then why go into the level of, why did I waste my time reading the genealogy of morals is what I'm really trying to get at. And I think some piece of it is that just because you disagree with the outcomes or disagree with the expression of it. Well, there's this thing called nihilism 
which Nietzsche is not presenting. Nietzsche mm-hmm. is presenting Nietzsche's thoughts on the world. Mm-hmm. And Nietzsche is trying to say, these are true things and these are false things. But there's no nihilism. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Nihilism is the, is the meme we give to this collection of people who we've never read and say, that's nihilism. Yeah. When in fact, all there is is Nietzsche. There is no nihilism. And I think that there are useful things to get from Nietzsche that are worthwhile. It's not all good. And you have to have some discernment to tell the good from the bad. But it's interesting. Eugene Peterson found things that were helpful from it. I think others might as well. The essay, The Madman, one where we've killed God, yeah. is a great essay. Oh, I, and I love reading Nietzsche. I read uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, or at least most of it, and it's a hoot. Because it's an enjoyable read. Mm-hmm. Do you find his arguments compelling? It's an enjoyable read, and many of his arguments... Uh, so, I think I've said this before, but as a Christian, I think it's important to read people who are critical of Christianity, and he and he was. And he, he keyed in on a few things that Christians do that maybe we shouldn't. Yes. And that was very influential for me, seeing like, okay, here's a thing that we do in Christian culture that shouldn't be done right. and is harmful to society and harmful to, harmful to everybody and isn't really included in the Gospels and Christ's message at all. It's just something we do. And so that was really influential. Mm-hmm. And then there are parts where I'm like, he's so way off, I'm not even in danger of falling into this trap. Like sure. when I'm, I remember one particular argument where he said a a philosophy of diffused love is one of strength and a philosophy of particular love is one of weakness. And I think we've talked about this before. You have, yes. Yeah. But if you've ever loved someone individually, you know that's way harder than loving everyone loving kind love, of vaguely. The yeah. idea of love. And it's similar to our Marx, our, yes. com- our podcast on Marx where it was like uh, the diagnosis of the problem is really compelling and then the solution is super debatable. It's similar to sure. Nietzsche where it's like 90% of what he says, you're like, yep, I'm on board. I follow, I follow. It makes total sense, total sense. Wait, what? I, right. I need to be a what? Sure. Uh, I need to do this. And then, then you're sort of off into... So, and those are the kinds of things that I find very compelling or very interesting to read are those like 90-10 writers where yeah. 90% you're on board and then that last 10% is a big left-hand turn where right. you're wondering... And where do we where do we lose sync here? And I appreciate that he's he's following something to its final conclusion. Yes. Right. He's he's living in a time when he could see the demise of religion sure. and say, like, this is coming and we're gonna have to figure out what to do in its absence. Right. And so he hopped into the boat and then flew down the rushing river when no one else was willing to. Right. And I there are a lot of people who now will tell you they don't believe in God, but they still maintain a morality. Yeah, they still functionally do. And the question is how and right. why? And Nietzsche would say, like, you're insane. Right. right? It, is in, it is insane to follow a morality from a religion you don't believe in. Right. And I appreciated his honesty and his bravery in that sense. And I, and I think this is in line with what you're saying, maybe not the exact same, is that then, it, so Nietzsche spends a lot of time criticizing Christianity. His criticisms are, are pretty good because he's a smart guy. He's a smart, thoughtful, well-read yeah. guy. So if he's raising concerns and you don't have an answer to what he's saying, that's, That's probably something to study. Yeah, yeah. Now, thankfully, thankfully, Christianity has a 2,000-year history in which essentially every question ever has been brought up before <laughs> and defended by someone much holier than me. And so uh, normally the answer is to go look for that um, or having the Bible to go to is, is great also. But just to say that if you're hearing a criticism that you haven't considered before, that's not – it doesn't have to be an attack. It can be kind of like a um, – What's the, what's the shot? Uh, vaccine. It's like a vaccine where mm-hmm. like you, you introduce some kind of foreign agent into your body, your body learns to protect against it, and then you move on healthier. I think it's, even if you hate everything Nietzsche stands for, I think that is a fine way to read and yep. absorb Nietzsche. Cool. I think that's, that's how anyone should, any philosophy should deal with attacks. Yes. Um, 
if you really believe that your thing is true, yes. then it will hold up to attacks. And so an, uh, like an attack should be something you go and investigate, not something you shy from. True. And I, I try to do that with Christianity, but it's, I think, something all Christians should do, right? An attack doesn't necessarily mean that you let the whole thing come crumbling down. Right. And if it does mean that the whole thing comes crumbling down, then maybe you are believing the wrong thing. Yeah, that what you were calling Christianity is not... Again, if, if for Christianity to have lasted 2,000 years, it stood up to... You know, much worse than whatever uh, crisis you're dealing with right now, right? Exactly. Uh, and I'm I'm saying this more from kind of the intellectual side of having an intellectual doubt that that has mm-hmm. probably been answered at some point. But yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent point. Yeah. Can can I um, introduce maybe one of those attacks that sure um, he will attempt, and I think it's an interesting one. So uh, there is a term universal morality, or a. Uh, I have moral relativism as opposed to moral universalism or absolutism, maybe as another word for it. Are these, these are words that you have heard before? Yes. I, I think I'm a moral, moral universalist. Okay. Well, give me, uh, can we define our terms when we say moral relativism? That normally means? You, your morals are defined by your circumstances and your current values and essentially your society. And the culture that you come from. The culture. So yeah. everything around you is, your morals are relative to what's going on in your circumstance. Sure. So a 10th grader will say things like, well... We only believe that murder is wrong because we've been taught it, whereas there's like probably like a tribe in Africa that believes that murder is okay. Sure. Or, or and it's not exactly I, a compelling... Not a compelling argument. argument. Or what I see very, very often is when we talk about the, the system of sin that Dante has set up, he'd be like, well, they believed in sins differently back then. Mm. And I was like, well, sins haven't changed though, right? So he's trying to say something about sins. That's and like, but that's interesting. Either it's relevant or it's not. Like usury. I don't want to follow. I do want to follow this one. Is there not something to his ordering that is related to his background? So his time and like the yeah, way yeah. that he places the importance on loyalty. Okay. So, and this is, and this is why I call myself a moral universalist is because I, I sort of take C.S. Lewis's Wait, stance. Wait, can we, Thomas, can you finish that point for people that maybe aren't totally on, on understanding where you're going with the, in terms of Dante's background? Oh, uh, he placed uh, loyalty at the bottom at the very because... Bottom. Well, he, uh, he, wasn't he kicked out of yeah. his town because yeah. he was allied with, I forget which group of Ghibellines or yeah. whatever. I just wanted to say, just because he was involved oh, in all that political intrigue, yes. and personally, maybe he puts loyalty at the bottom because of his co- own personal context. And maybe lived at a... So lived at a time where loyalty was, at a, was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, but also to say that he lived in a time pre-Italian state, so like that loyalty to your kind of local group of people meant much more like you lived or died based on that loyalty as opposed to now where you can be unpatriotic and still live in the United States. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 so, yeah, so moral you. universalism makes this claim, and this is a claim that I stand by, is that there are a certain set of values that are premises, not conclusions. They're essentially not to be challenged and have found the same expression in all humanity throughout all time. Um, not Sorry, not the same expression, but have existed in, in humanity. The expression does change. Can I maybe focus that a little bit? Sure. So uh, the expression changes, but if you were to take those expressions and work backwards, you would get to that premise that is unchanged throughout humanity. Yeah. So for example, like tolerance is one of the primary virtues, I would say, of the United States right now. Um, It is an outcropping of what we would call charity or love, right? An, An essential virtue. Now, the expression does change relative to circumstance, right? So uh, I'm thinking honor for, for Rome. I'm thinking um, intellectual curiosity for the Greeks. And there are, there are these things that find more or less expression. And there can be real advancements, right? Tolerance is not as much a virtue as kindness. Mm-hmm. But they reach down to those same set things. 
a, a society where true cowardice, I mean, real cowardice was celebrated is one that we cannot imagine. Or, or for example, loyalty, mm. right? Where betraying my very best friend for no reason at all is something that is taught and lauded in schools, right? That's, that's, it's so alien to us that we cannot conceive of it. That's moral universalism, at least as far as I am. Yeah. And you, you may yeah. find an example where someone has betrayed their best friend but it's that no reason at all that's important because they may yeah, have betrayed right. their best friend because they were in service to a different ideal that they held as being more important than that particular loyalty. Or because they were being a coward, in yeah. which case you are still upholding, you yeah, know, yeah. like bravery as a virtue and also betrayal as a negative, yeah. right? There, we cannot, we can barely imagine a society where the virtues are truly backwards. Okay. Well, let's try it. Or so, nor do we have an example of one in history. We don't have yeah. one, yeah. So then you all, this will, this will be good. So with that set up, I have three questions here. So do you all both subscribe to some form of uh, moral absolutism or universal? Yep. Okay. Yes. Universal morality. Okay. So since you both subscribe to this, I'm expecting both of you to have all the exact same answers because that's the meaning of moral absolutism. I mean, I already feel, I know the trick you're doing, but okay. I'm very excited. Rock and roll, buddy. Now I've picked these three questions randomly and I don't expect you all to disagree on any of them. Are you prepared? Because we're moral absolutists. Right. Exactly. Are you prepared? Yes, I'm prepared. You wake up next to a set of trolley tracks oh in the distance. You see a tra- <laughs> in the distance, you see a trolley headed for five people who are tied to the tracks. You see a lever next to you, which, if pulled, will redirect the trolley to a section of tracks with one person tied to it. Do you pull the lever? I throw Thomas in front of the trolley. <laughs> Look, as moral absolutist, I know that you two will have the same answer to this. I already want to argue with you. I know. <laughs> Question number two. If you wanted to argue, I'm with writing me, it down. I only need a yes or no. For number two... There's a yes or... Oh, do you pull the lever? Do you pull the lever? That's Number two, which I also expect you to have no disagreement about, is T.S. Eliot an overrated poet? And finally, number three. This one's a little longer, so please feel free to take time. I will be talking while you answer this. No, Please don't uh, corroborate on this. Number three. When someone is convicted of a crime, should they be punished? And Why? When someone is convicted of a crime, should they be punished, and why? While Graham finished much quick, much more, much quicker, much more quickly than I expected him to, I I will briefly talk through the genealogy of morality and give a a brief, brief overview of the second and third essays. We all I managed to butcher in the first one was the first essay, and here I'll do violence to the second and third parts. So again, book one is focused on these two dichotomies of good and bad and good and evil. Uh, where did they come from? Good and bad, he ties to nobility versus not nobility. And good and evil, he ties to religious versus, or he ties to the religious realm and says that historically, questions of good and evil have been answered in the, relig- in the religious sector. He, he'll tie it, he'll, he, because he doesn't believe in God, he'll say that most religious commands come from purity first and foremost. And if you read the Old Testament, you could see that that condemning shellfish is because, you know, shellfish can have bad diseases in them, therefore you shouldn't eat them. Things like that. It's obviously an irreligious reading of the Old Testament, but it's not an illogical reading of it, just to say that. Okay. And then in this second part, um, he has lots of examples. One of them is on violence and why violent, or uh, on punishment. Why are criminals punished? So before we go into that, Let's take our three answers. So the first one for the trolley. Do you pull 
on the count of three, I'll say one, two, three, and then you both say your answers. They'll both ring out in unison together. Uh, you can pull a, uh, a, a lever and redirect a trolley from five people to one. Do you pull the lever? One, two, three? No. Yeah. Okay, exactly. Can I pull a lever over and over and over again until I break it? <laughs> uh, sh- sure. And then hopefully it gets like broken halfway in between and the trolley just careens off the tracks? No. Number two, is T.S. Eliot an overrated poet? One, two, three. Yes. No. Okay, great. And then when some... Well, before we go on to the third one... Well, I, sorry. How does that have to do with objective Can morality? I say... Are, as, are aesthetic choices subjective? And can I say T.S. Eliot's not... Not an overrated poet, but that specific poem is the wasteland. You yeah, mean? yeah. Okay, that, that's a fine position to hold. Okay, are 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 uh, wow? Are our perceptions of art relative? Do, does this not? Well, poem? your question is about like overrated in terms of public opinion. Sure. I mean, everyone could think it's terrible, but that doesn't mean it's. Should bad. I have asked? Is it good? Yes. Is T. S. Eliot a good poet? Yes. Yes. Okay. Is the wasteland good? Yes. No. Well, the, there you go. Okay. I should have asked, is the wasteland good? I apologize. So why do you two have different answers to these first two? Just take the first one. The first one is about murder or not murder. Oh, maybe not. You you do you think you would be murdering that one person by pulling the lever, correct? Yeah. Okay, that, so it's about uh, murder. I think which I'd is be a, murdering the five by, yeah, not, by not pulling by, it. By not. So, I, so, I walk around not doing things all the time and people die. Okay, I, I don't want to go into it. We, we did a whole episode savage. on it. Yeah, nice try. Um, <laughs> if moral absolutism is true, if there are absolute moral values, why do you two disagree on a very simple yes-no question? Because, and I said this, the expression of morals can change, but both of us are reaching down to a universal moral, and the universal moral is that life is worth preserving and murder is wrong. Right, we are both trying to not commit murder or have a, a, the, a, the least murder committed possible. Mm-hmm. Well, not necessarily. Well, least murder, but not least death necessarily. That's actually yeah, an yes. interesting least murder, but not least death. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. So, so there is still a moral universal here. The the like true moral relativism would be like I think we should pull the lever because people being alive is evil and mm. but AJ wants wrong. to maximize murder yes, by pulling exactly. that lever exactly and and because I'm a good person I want to maximize murder because I'm good I do think this is I, I think this is what's fun and interesting is not fun whatever is that within absolutism you can still have disagreement I think that the distinction with absolutism is that there are answers at the end of that debate or discussion as opposed to relativism that ultimately ends with we can't there's nothing we can there's nothing to discuss essentially or yeah and and that's the point is that we can have the discussion because there is an unquestioned premise there that we can rest on whereas in relativism we're just passing the time yes because it's an expression of my morals and an expression of his morals and really there's there's no nothing to get to because there's nowhere to start okay so then let's see if we find Nietzsche compelling on this third one so, when someone is convicted of a crime, should they be punished? Yes. Graham, can you tell me why? Justice. <laughs> okay, just one word? Okay. Yes. And that was essentially my answer. Was that your answer to yeah. Okay, so let me give, this is Nietzsche's, this is a, a quote from a longer section, as all Nietzsche things are. So, um, you'll get the point of it as I go through it. Um, so, Nietzsche goes on and on here. Foucault later makes a career out of this kind of questioning. To at least give an impression of how uncertain, belated, and haphazard the meaning of punishment is, and how one and the same procedure can be used, interpreted, and adapted for fundamentally different projects, you have here a formula that suggested itself to me on the basis of relatively restricted and random material. Punishment as a means of rendering harmless or preventing further harm. Punishment as payment of a debt to the creditor in any form, even one for emotional compensation. 
punishment as a means of isolating a disturbance of balance to prevent further spread of the disturbance. Punishment as a means of inspiring the fear for those who undermine, I'm sorry, for, uh, of those who determine and execute punishment as a means of inspiring, inspiring those who execute punishment. Punishment as a sort of counterbalance to the privileges which the criminal has enjoyed up till now. Punishment, isn't that a bad one? Yeah. If essentially they got rich, so now they have to get punished. Punishment as a rooting out of, de of degenerate elements. And he goes on and on, but I will not. Um, so the point he's making is that our reasons for punishing have changed over time. Any one of those reasons you can pull out and say, whoever's executing the punishment can say, I'm doing it for this reason. But what isn't changed is that someone who is able to do punishment is doing punishment to someone who is receiving punishment. And so that's what he'll just, that's what he'll point to and say is the absolute thing repeated through history to take your example there. It's not that the reasons are the same. It's that the, you'll hate this, the power differential is the same, or I know you hate that, or that the, um, the relationship of the two is the same. And that's the constant over time. Tell me why that's wrong. But the, I don't think the power dynamic is the same or the relationship is the same because if your reasons differ, well, then your expression of the punishment is going to differ. So if you are punishing because you believe that this person is a moral agent and the punishment is actually going to be beneficial for their soul and their rehab and um, they're standing before God one day, well, your punishment's going to be very different than if your reason behind it is you want to, you know, give back or you want to, you know, get back what was given. So there's some sort of retribution. I want you to hurt as much as you hurt me. Right. So if you're somebody that says, I want you to hurt as much as you hurt me, that's a, your way of doing that punishment is going to be, have a different characteristic than if you are someone that says, you are a made in God's image soul. Well, you, you sort of, the last one you said was rooting out a, um, degenerate, element. a degenerate element. And I think as modern people, we hear that and we're like, oh, who are you to tell me what is degenerate and who are you to root out an element? Uh, we of course those, to do that all those the things out. But, you know, so the the expression of punishment is going to differ based on on the, the, the rationality behind it. Sure. So it's not just that. So it's even sort of silly to say that, like, uh, that punishment is this category and it's always existed. And even though the, the differences, even though the reasons have changed, we still have this this power dynamic. No, I don't think so. Like, the the... the the rationale and the reasoning behind it m drives like what our, how it's actually going to take shape, right? Like you punish your kids, mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, because you have a good for them that you want them to adhere to, and the punishment is effective, right? Like, right? Like um, kids aren't rational creatures where you sit them down, and explain to them why my sticking their head in a chair, my three-year-old cut. I don't think so. He's not. No. Uh, uh, no one is. So it's, uh, you know, the punishment actually works. Um, so uh, anyway. I think it's ridiculous because it, there is a, more, a value here that has not changed. And that all of the ones, that, almost all the ones you mentioned are expressions of social justice, right? If I have been getting rich in illegitimate ways, I should have to pay that pay back. back yeah. Or if I, have, if I have to repay a debt, right? Th both of those are expressions of justice. And so underlying all of this is the conviction that justice is good. And not only that, but that social a social justice, a community is a good thing, right? Root out the evil element, repay debts, right. right? So underneath all of this, we are believing that men together is a good thing. Yes. And justice is a good thing, except yes. for the one that's the dumbest I, I can think of. Which and one? that's that 
We are giving out punishment to inspire the people doing the punishing. Right. Gosh, that's the most circular definition I can ever think of. It's like, I'm having them build a thousand tables simply to inspire those who make tables. Like that's, it's, it's yeah. a, the worst reason. Sure. And you could justify anything that way. Yes. But I think that's his point is that the, the point he's trying to draw out is that you can justify anything with any reason you want to. But he's, he's wrong. That's the reason that sticks out because sure. all the others are aimed at justice. The, so he, he's not too far off from what you're saying, except what he'll, he's, he's trying to develop where does conscience come from. And his conception of conscience comes from this desire for a community and the debts we owe to that community then rest on us as individuals and that we must live up to those debts that are given to us. So he'll, he's framing it differently and it's not the Graham to your examples. It's not a loving family, a loving close knit community working closely together. He's very focused on like merchants that grow rich and when people attack their wealth, they can punish people who come at them. So obviously he's framing it very differently, but the good of community and maintaining that community is what he's pointing to for but survival. That's the thing is that they, that's, that would be one of the universals that you could point to that you could point to is that yeah. community is a, is a good. I do think the other part of it is that trying to tie together all violence as having some common purpose and it being power always, or I don't know the right way to say it, but you know, pre mass forms of communication, like you don't know, why someone three villages away is punishing someone in their village. There's no reason to think there's a connection between any of them. Well, I think he's making a, a causal mistake. He is mistaking the definition of violence, which is someone in power hurting someone with less power, with the cause of yes. violence. I, was gonna, I didn't know if there was a, a phrase for this. It's almost incidental. It's, it's yes, he is technically correct that to do punishment, you must be in a position to do the punishment. But that doesn't say why it's happening. It, that's just the precondition for the, the punishment. It is one of the, yeah, one of the facets of punishment yeah. is that someone in power is hurting somebody. So they're not Robin Hood. He's punishing the rich. He's mean, on power. They don't, they don't have the power to stop him. That's yeah. true. Right? He can do what he wants to because he's he, because he's, he's sneaky and he's great at, great at bows. Sure. <laughs> and he's got, a, he's got a band of merry men. They are very merry. So merry? It's, I have not, I clearly need to read more in my life. Okay. So that's his second essay is where does conscience come from? It comes from this sense of debt that we have to our community. Again, you're, there's some similarity between AJ, what you're saying as this kind of good, but he doesn't paint it as good. He paints it as a necessity of survival in community is this debt that so we have. assuming that survival is good. Yes. Sorry. Well, uh, we'll get there in just a second. Um, then this, uh, the third essay I, I super won't go into. It's about asceticism, so like the denial of earthly goods. He, this entire section is him saying that we should ignore all forms of asceticism in artists because what made them great usually is something grand in them, something uh, not ascetic. What's the opposite of ascetic? Uh, flagrant is the word coming to mind. Um, Living... It wouldn't be libertine. It would be, would it be a, what's, what's the word for someone who it's not the liberty. It's like the bigness of their lives. Like that's think of an artist like that. The majesty. Yes. Majesty. Oh, that's a great yeah. word. Or the ornament, yeah. like the uh, ornamentation, like the both good words. Yeah. So, and so he thinks that asceticism and majesty are opposites. He says, Ooh. so stick with me. The, he's making this argument that we should ignore when artists say asceticism is good because often when makes artists, what makes the art good is the flamboyance. The when was like, the last time you heard an artist say, like, I you, live small? 
so he's writing this and he talks about this quite a bit. Cardi said it, I think, recently. Cardi B? Is that true? You made that up. No, she definitely uh, did not. So uh, we talked last time about how he had this on again, off again friendship with, it was actually on again and then literally off for the rest of his life friendship with um, uh, Wagner, uh, Richard, Richard Wagner. Uh, and that later in Wagner's life, he wrote an opera called Parsifal. And this entire the essay is not only about this, but it seems it seems to be essentially him attacking Wagner for coming around to a more conservative set of values in his um, elderly years. Mm -hmm. And Nietzsche is seeing this as an archetype of all artists that they start off as young and bold and wanting to impart their vision to the world, and then they die uh, normal, old conservatives. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's that's not far off from what he's arguing. The only class of people who are exempt from this suspicion. Do you want to guess who it is? Philosophers. It has to be philosophers. Hey, so um, they are so um, they're they're so mind blowingly insightful that if they were to just speak their truth without the cover of asceticism, there would be riots in the street and people would be flocking to them, and kings would seek to assassinate all philosophers. Of course, it's very silly. Anyway, and delusions of grandeur, yeah. maybe. I I keep I keep uh, inching into negativity toward this, but I think just so I say it to be clear, I think the earlier parts of the genealogy are much more compelling than the later parts. I think when Nietzsche is sticking to his field of study, language, philology. He has much more to say than at this point where he's in diatribe screed territory. So that, that's just my personal perception. Okay, uh, so he'll trace some more things about asceticism, not super important. He'll end by saying this thing he's done in talking about tracing a genealogy of good and bad, that should be done for all values that we hold, that we should look at everything in our lives and say, why does this exist? Why is this something I believe? And to what degree is it merely something I have inherited? So this is the, again, we've referenced the phrase will to power, but I as an individual need to assess all the things around me and determine, do I want to keep it or do I want to throw it off and replace it with something else? And Nietzsche is not necessarily negative on this. He thinks the struggle is just core to what it is to be alive. And so as opposed to a Leopardi who will say, give up, nothing matters, Nietzsche says, once more into the fray. Let's get into the fight. The struggle is part of the meaning. So I've done that. I've laid out this argument. Um, Am I allowed to agree with Nietzsche on that? Uh, sure. That that I think it is a, a healthful thing to look at the values you hold. Um, yes. Cut out the toxic people, AJ. Just cut them out. Well, I mean, cut, cut out the things that are, that are perhaps inherited from family or church, all, all these things that are negative. For, for example, when I was young, I went to a pretty legalistic church and it, it bred some pretty negative things in me. And if I wouldn't have evalu evaluated those values, I could still be a pretty legalistic, terrible person. And I think that's a good thing. I think the only difference between what I'm doing and what Nietzsche is doing is he's saying, do it in the absence of some sort of root values, although he still has one. It's how the, do you know it's the you, personal freedom yes. is good. But how do you know you wouldn't be the fine, upstanding person that you are now if you had not had your formative years in a legalistic I, I'm not saying that. I'm not, like, that's fine. Formative years in legalism is great. I, I also had some really rough years growing up in school that have definitely formed me as a person. But it would be bad to have kept those attitudes. Yeah, right. I'm just well, saying that when you, when you say, okay, I'm at this point now where I'm going to, like, think of everything that I believe and uphold and act on and I'm going to like whittle it down to first principles and ask myself whether I'm going to keep it or chuck it, whether it sparks joy or not. Uh-huh, thank you. Um, it's like Marie Kondo, Kondo Nietzsche yeah. philosopher. Um, like, I just, how can you be assured that your 
perception of its value in your life is a good thing or a bad thing, right? Like you can't, you can't. So right. that you, if you do that all the time, but not value my life, just the truth of the principle. And, and I, as I was going to say, I, I do it in light of like first principle, real values and the gospel, right? That's, that is where I'm kind of basing it. Like, is my legalism gospel centric? Really? No. Like it's, it's not a gospel thing that I should be doing. And sure. so that's something that I can chuck and yep. should be chucked. Right. And so I'm doing it within, within the realm of universals and openly acknowledging that those are things that I don't necessarily question. Right. right? Murder is bad. I'm not going to question that. Pedophilia, also bad. Right. Um, but other things that I believe in uphold, I can, I can run through that gamut and say, yes, yes. But or you're, no. you're running through that gambit and holding it up against a tradition, holding it up against a text, a story, a, a 2000 year point of reference, point outside, of reference of outside of yourself that, and you say like, okay, like, is my legalism upholding the gospel? And if you say no, okay, well, then my legalism goes away. Whereas I don't think Nietzsche is saying that. He's saying the point of reference is Yourself. My, own my, personal own, freedom. my own personal freedom and my own taste either at that moment, which opens up a whole problem of, like, your own headspace at the moment. Right. Or uh, if um, – yeah, so and, – so Or saying, my own personal taste at this time. Oh, yeah. So I'm not saying you okay. should do it how Nietzsche does it. Yeah. I'm saying, like, it is a good thing to evaluate the things that maybe you unthinkingly believe. Yes. Sure. Right? I and that's doing, why I love yeah. reading Nietzsche is because he forces you to do it. Yeah. But, but I don't think you should do it and say – I will only keep it if it sure. sparks joy, right? If, th- if the morals in me give me more personal power and freedom. I think doing that kind of inventory, that sort of like soul inventory frequently is very profitable. Yeah. But if you, but again, if you don't have the point of reference, if your point of reference is like, does this make me more powerful, powerful, then right. like you're going to be a jerk. Um, <laughs> yeah. like, no, seriously. And right. like, yeah. um, or you are going to, there's problems with like optimizing for the short term that don't optimize in the long term. Yeah. Right. And so you may, you may look at all of these things and you're like, well, this doesn't profit me. And you then therefore you optimize for the short term and then you screwed up the long term. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you just don't know that things are optimized for the long term because you're your own individual agent. Whereas a tradition of something has maybe optimized for the long term and has said, Hey, you should mm-hmm. hold to these values because you know, over, a lifetime, believe it, you know, do, following this is better for you than, tr- than, than, than throwing off all traditions and optimizing for the short term because, well, you know, you might die of syphilis one day or Yeah, whatever. it's probably good to do this process with someone who has a little bit more, like, has seen a little more runway than you have. Yeah. Sure. Right? So I, when I was young, I would have thrown off a lot of traditions because I'd be like, they're silly. I don't need to do this. Right. Like, I don't need to force myself to pray. pray should, prayer should be spontaneous. Yes. And what should have happened is I should have talked to somebody with some years under their belt. And they're well, you're not always going to want to pray, buddy. And you're not always going to be in a position to pray like yeah. genuinely and honestly. And right. so the tradition is there to force you to do something you know is good for you, but don't necessarily want to. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, maybe do it with, with a mentor, but it is still a good process. I think, I think we're on the same page yeah. on this one. Don't, it's like that, you know, the, the old, I think it's, I was doing the very thing I hated. I think it says in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> no, but it's, it's the uh, the idea of like don't remove the boundary stone until you know why the boundary stone was put there in the first place. Yeah. So if you are to. if you are doing this process yeah. with no reference at all, yes, you are likely to burn down the house you're standing in. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You're like I don't need I don't need these windows. I can yeah. do just as good without any windows and let the breeze in. And I don't need this door. And sure. what are the walls for? I can't see the stars. And you're just going to burn your whole house. It's down. a problem of dialectic, right? Like yeah, yeah. sure. Um, uh, or the you know. Uh, where the novice gardener goes to the experienced gardener and the experienced gardener says, well, the best way to grow more fruit is to prune, 
is to prune my trees, and the novice gardener like cuts his entire garden down to the nubs. <laughs> sure, that's <laughs> right. A, that's a good comparison. And, and then he and then he's left wondering why he has a wasteland. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what there's so much room for stuff to grow. Yeah. Because I don't know the way to say it. Because when Nietzsche Nietzsche's writing, kind of early on in this decline of Christianity as a social force, and I, I just think maybe this is to AJ's point. He just identifies so much that is. Uh, that is going to happen. This sense of the death of God, this despair, like, this but yeah, he's identifying it at a period of history when Christianity had sort of like, so let's separate like ah, Christianity Christ- gospel and Christianity as like a social expression that had calcified into a way of life. Yes. That was dying. Right, that was sure. probably rotten from the beginning. And now it's just starting to show, show itself. Yeah. Um, and, and he was right. And now, and so, the, you know, Europe is not a, you know, it has a Christian history, but it doesn't have, you know, it's, 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 it's gone. Not so, predominantly Christian now. And so, like, the thing that he's often railing against is probably, like, worth railing against. Sure. Just like how um, uh, Kierkegaard, when he was railing against uh, the sort of calcified, uh, um, like, the Christian culture that was severed from the, from the trunk, right? Like, when he's railing against that, like he should be railing against that. It's sure. the. Um, in fact, T. S. Eliot has a great poem about this, but I won't get into it's it. It's overrated. I wouldn't worry about it. So yes, that again, just to say again, I think there are helpful things to glean from going through Nietzsche. Again, this is probably the same thing we say after every book. And this, I don't think it's a. It's not a Christian point. It's just to observe that whenever you read something, keep the good and get rid of the bad. So there's something helpful and interesting here. It's not all perfect or good and it gets used in weird ways during world war ii i already talked about that so there's stuff to be careful with um just to uh since we're basically at time the thing that i th- ultimately i think is separating nietzsche and Leopardi is this unstated assumption of the goodness of existence versus not existence and i'm not hmm. sure that an argument can be made to justify one opinion or the other um but i think that t- for anyone who is in the who is who identifies as nihilist or wants to throw off all of their values. I think Leopardi's worldview actually needs to be contended with much more than maybe he is. Again, Nietzsche is much more popular than Leopardi, I think, because Nietzsche just is more optimistic in his own way, that there is kind of a hope in the meaninglessness as opposed to Leopardi. You can appeal to your own selfishness. You can do whatever you want to, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. who wouldn't love that? People love being told that they're, they're yeah. right. Freedom and power are good. Yeah. Well, it sounds awesome. And so that's where I just think that uh, for one wanting to slough off all um, all values or whatever that come before, I think Leopardi's challenge needs to be studied, dealt with, thought about more carefully, because I'm not convinced that one is more rational than the other. And I think that's often the portrayal of why annihilism is better. It's just the way things are and cold, I don't, cold rationalism. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, this, there's no reason. Well, uh, this, this kind of, this kind of debate or question goes back a long time. Uh, AJ, do you remember when Achilles is found in the underworld when Odysseus finds him? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the conversation that they have? Odysseus is like, man, you must be killing it down here. Got all the babes. You're yeah. ruling this place. You're so glorious. And Achilles is like, it sucks. Have you seen my kid? And I would rather be a dirt poor tenant farmer, farmer than rule over all these breathless dead. Yeah. Like, I'll just, uh, Life is awesome. Uh, so yeah, Odysseus starts with this like praise of him, just like you said. Achilles responds, is no, responds, no winning words about death to me, shining Odysseus. By God, I'd rather slave on earth for another man, some dirt poor tenant farmer, that's what you just said, who scrapes to keep alive than rule down here over all the breathless dead. And so I think that there is this, the tension that Leopardi and Nietzsche show is one is an old tension. Again, Odysseus has a praise of uh 
Achilles' glory, even though he's dead. And Achilles would rather have life than not life. So anyway, it's a long standing tension, but one that I think we like the answer of Nietzsche, but saying why it's better on purely rational grounds, I think is really hard to do. So that's the only place to end with, with that. We're at an hour right now. Cool. Thank you all for your time. Awesome. Well, this has been classical stuff. You should know with Graham, Thomas and AJ. Uh, If you want to at us, you can add us on the twits at classical stuff, C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. You can email us at the guys at classical stuff.net. Uh, you can find us on, I mean, you found us, so you know how to find us. Um, but we've got a, uh, a, Patreon. a website. we got a Patreon where you can find in-between episodes and you can talk to us in comment sections, and uh, it's fun. And we will catch you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.